I don't think I need to build much of a case to make this statement and then you to be kind of with me on it. There is a lot of confusion today as to what it means to follow Christ. There's a lot of confusion today as to what it means to follow Christ. Just think with me in regards to the broader culture. Uh, what does that look like? What does it entail? Uh, the AIM crew, our youth and family ministry, we got together a few weeks ago and watched a, a documentary, Lord, Save Us From Your Followers. And in the course of that documentary, there was this man-on-the-street uh, interview that was done, and it was rather revealing, and the question was posed to the people who were being captured there on camera, what's your impression of the church? What's your impression of Christians in, in general? And the answers went something like this, and I'm not getting all of them, but just a few of them. Well, holy, uh, fanatic, go to church, um, holy wars, uh, culture wars, wanting to make other people Christians, love your neighbor, those kind of answers from the man on the street are insightful, they're revealing, they're helpful to hear. If you really hear them and think about it, they ought to be discouraging too. Is that really, really want we, what we want people to be uh, coming away thinking? Well, okay, fine. Let's, let's go now. Let's take the, ch change this just a little bit. And let's take this question and move it from the man on the street to within the ranks. What do most Christians, how would most Christians answer the question? What's your impression of, I'm going to tweak it a little bit, what's your impression of, what's your understanding of, what it means to follow Christ? And here, an interview is not going to do you but so much good. Uh, what you really need to do is just observe. Just watch. Just listen. And again, the answers you get in that, in many cases, might be really insightful, but might be just as discouraging as the last batch of data that you just gathered, and maybe even more so. There's a lot of confusion as to what it means to follow Christ. Well, what on earth does it mean then? Let's look at our text. If you have a Bible with you, let's go to Matthew 4. Uh, we're moving on through this series in, in Matthew 4, and I will acknowledge right now we're just doing little increments here. So it may be till I'm retired before we get through this series. But Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 18 through 22 is where we are. Uh, just for this morning, Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. If you're trying to find it, Matthew is the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, Luke, John, Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. What, on, what indeed does it mean to follow Christ? Hear now God's word. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need to know this. Uh, wherever, wherever, however it is we're coming into this uh, place, this time here this morning, whatever the state of our hearts, whatever the state of relationship or, or maybe even lack thereof with you uh, that we are in this morning, 
uh, we need to, to come to grips with what it means to follow you uh, and then wrestle through with the implications with that. And we ask that you'd help us. This is, this is uh, in some respects, um, hard teaching. Hard teaching. And, and we ask that you'd help us here, really truly here, to see what was transpiring uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that day and to really hear for ourselves as well. Amen. If you go to the Yigal Alon Center there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, you can see what is referred to now by the tourism industry as the Jesus Boat. Uh, the Jesus Boat is actually the, the, the remains of a first century fishing boat that was discovered in 1986 there on the Sea of Galilee in the course of a severe drought. It was discovered, it's been preserved, and it's there in that museum. It's fascinating to see some, I don't know exactly what this would be, but some 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, would have fit uh, comf relatively comfortably. Uh, 15 men had uh, decks both fore and aft, a mast and a sail, not now, but then, of course. Uh, also, room on both sides, positions for oars to be able to move through the sea. Now, we have no reason to believe whatsoever that there was any connection between this boat and, and Jesus and the disciples. I'm not trying, please don't hear me trying to say that. But that said, this was exactly the kind of boat, and from that time period, that we're reading of here in Matthew 4. What's my point? My point being that this is, this is, a, this is a record of historical events. This happened in time and in space. If you had been there, you could have laid your hand on the side of the boat. You could have gotten your feet wet. You could have heard what was being said. You would have been dumbstruck by what you were seeing taking place there on the sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee that day. Into these historic, into the flow of history comes this man, Jesus of Nazareth, of whom his genealogy, going back to Matthew 1, we learned is the son of David, of whom at his appearing, nature, creation itself, and the nations through the Magi heralded his arrival of whom the ancient prophets spoke again and again and again. And he comes. And what is his message? Well, we talked about this last week. It's summed up there so beautifully, so powerfully. Uh, there in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, then begins to gather followers. And it's worth noting from whom he gathers them, and from whom he doesn't. He does not go down to gather them from among the religious, from the church people. He does not go to the Jerusalem temple. He does not go into the Pharisaical courts. He does not speak to members of the Sanhedrin. He, does, he is not bothering with the self-assured and the self-righteous. He goes to the everyman. He goes to the commoner. He goes to the masses. He goes to people like you and me from among the fishermen there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You know, what do we observe in this? What do we, what do we take away from this? What lessons can we glean from this? He is the king. Jesus is the king, and the king has come. He is the king, and the king has come, and he is issuing a summons, a call, a call to follow him. That's basically it. 
He is the King. He has come and He has called us to follow Him. It's the call to discipleship. Three things I want to look at that I think are very rather evident here in this short text. In the little bit of time that we have, I want to look at them. First, in turn, the, the nature of this call. Secondly, the results of the call. And third, the response to the call. The nature of the call, the results of the call, and what is the right response to the call. Let's look at these in turn. First, the nature of the call. What is it? What is it that's being, I guess you could say, called for in this call? From what's driving it? What's behind it? Uh, let's look. just think of me, with me about the plain meaning of Jesus' words here. Uh, understand something. We need to, it's helpful to understand something of the uh, original, uh, the customs of the day. I'll put it, put it that way. Um, the custom of the day, if you had a, a rabbi, if you're a follower of a particular rabbi, it, what it meant was yours was to listen and to learn. That was your role, to listen and to learn. Now, that sounds like a lot. It's actually somewhat passive. You're just soaking up. That's not what this means. Jesus says, follow me. That's what this rabbi says. It's not passive, it's active. It's get engaged. Follow me. Literally, it means to come behind me. Don't walk out in front of me. Don't even walk beside me. Get behind me. Watch me. What I do, you do. Where I go, you go. And as I go, you do those things. This is not passive. It is active. It's not just listening and learning. It's going and doing. There's some significance to, to all that when you, when you think about that. It's just the plain meaning of the call. And, and coupled with that, the raw authority of it. Just the, the, the raw authority. I mean, think of it. Think of it. Just, just coming up to some guys, tending their boat, tending their nets, and saying, follow me. The, the raw Naked authority here in Jesus' words. Again, and there's, there's no, this is not passive. Again, the customs of the day. The custom of the day was actually when it came to being a follower and a rabbi, it was up to you to pick the rabbi you wanted to. You chose. The poor old rabbi just has to sit back and wait. I guess he could put, a, you know, put out something in Craigslist, I suppose. But he's basically waiting for to assemble his group of followers. He's waiting on them. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus is in no way passive here. He is, he is active. He is engaging. And by the way, did you notice it's not an invitation? There's no please here. It's not an invitation. It's a command. It's an, it's an imperative. In no sense whatsoever is Jesus saying that I'm putting something before you that's a, it's one of several good options. I hope you pick this one. No, there's an insistence to his words here. That's the nature of the call. The plain meaning, follow me, and the raw authority of it as well. And it's the same call. Same call today. Follow me. With the same authority behind it. None other than, than Jesus, the Son of God himself. Which means what? When we hear that call, this is not something to be nuanced or negotiated. This is not something to be debated or dismissed. It is not something to be evaded or ignored. It's to be heard and heeded. Follow me, is what he says. 
What he said to them then, he says to us now. The king has come. He's issued a summons, issued a call. Follow me. That's the nature of the call, which takes us to the next thing, the result of the call. Where does it take you? What's it look like? What does it entail? The result of the call. A radical change. Certainly that's part of it. A radical change. And it's interesting to, to note here, um, they're still fishing. These men are still going to be fishing. The, the lessons that they've learned over the years, the experience that they've gleaned over the years out there on that lake is still going to be put into play. Just like with David. With David, his years as, as a shepherd tending the flocks, those lessons would come into play years later when he be, would become the shepherd, the king over Israel. It's not that all that he learned before would be forgotten. But here, okay, they would still be fishing, but not for fish. Now for men. Now for men, given a new purpose, new goals, new priority, new loyalty, new direction, all driven, all grounded, all impelled, compelled by a passion for Jesus and the gospel. There's a radical, there's a breach taking place here. There's a radical change taking place. Now that said, it's also paradoxically a steady process. A radical change that has taken place and a steady process that is now under underway. It's not as though all this is going to happen all at once. This is not a quick fix. This is not ten steps to changing the world. Though that's what happened. But it's something that's going to take place over time. Slowly, surely, incrementally, with setbacks along the way. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to take all your courage, all your patience, all your perseverance, all those things that you have learned out there on that sea. I'm going to take all that sense of timing that you have as a fisherman. I'm going to take all your techniques and I'm going to reform them. I'm going to take it all. I'm going to take you. And I'm going to make you into what you need to be in order that I can then through you Save men and women from the abyss, the waters, the sea of their sin and ruin. That's the result. On the one hand, this radical change, this breach, at the same time, a process, not all at once, but slow and steady. The result of the call. You put it this way. Jesus says still to us, follow me. And in that, there is that radical change, sometimes even instantaneous, in the moment. And yet at the same time, he says, follow me and I will, did you get this? Follow me and I will make you. Follow me, change direction, come after me, and I will make you. I will make you something new, a, a process un, under, underway, a, re, a reforming of your heart and life underway. It's, it's like this. I could just capture it in this simple way. It's like we are the raw recruit still undergoing the training and yet sent out on a top secret mission. Somehow at the same time. We are the lump of coal still under the pressure, you know, becoming a diamond, get this, with a lump of coal still under the pressure, yet set into the silver pendant. What? How can that be? How, 
You need to keep in mind who's doing the work. Who is this ultimately about? Who's, who's doing the, the work in and through us? Jesus is. This king who has come, this one who is issuing this summons to follow him. I need to reckon with that, the result of the call. The nature of the call, what is it? The result of the call, where does it take you? Thirdly, finally, the response to the call. What, what do you do with it? How ought, how ought we not just hear it, but heed it? Well, recognizing first, it demands a new identity. Two things, a new identity and a new community, but first a new identity. So think with me just for a moment. Literally speaking, what do these men leave behind? What do they turn from and leave behind? Well, the text tells us. They, they leave behind their nets floating in the water, two sets of brothers. The other two sets of brothers leave their boats sitting on, on the shore. You recognize that these are not poor indigenous peasants. These are fishermen. These are businessmen. You need to understand, again, the culture of the time. Fishing was a vital part of the Galilean economy. Likely, most likely, I don't know what your impression is of the disciples, but most likely these guys had a pretty good living for their day, for their time. And what they're being told, I was going to say ask, what they're being told to do is to leave behind um, the tools of their trade. Okay, that's literally leaving behind. What, symbolically, right? Symbol, what's behind that? When, you, when they're doing that, then what's, what's behind that? What's the heart? What's the mindset? Where they know? They're leaving behind their security. All that they know. All that they're familiar with. What they can count on, they're leaving behind. And coupled with that, they're leaving their careers, right? Everything that felt safe. All their plans that seemed Mm, so well thought out. Leaving it behind to follow him. New identity. New. Follow me. New identity. Follow me. New community. What else? Or can I say, who else are they leaving behind? It's not just boats. Excuse me, not just nets, but not just a boat, but a man standing in a boat. Did you pick up on that? Zebedee, the father of the latter two, is left behind. Again, understand something of this traditional culture where kin and relations and blood tie and family meant so much. So, so much. And they're leaving their father behind. So much so that likely there in the, the town of Capernaum, those men are probably now just open themselves up to charges of dishonoring their parents. Leaving Zebedee standing there in the boat. Look, that's the response to the call. New identity in the context of a new community, a new family. A new family. Now let me give a couple of clarifiers here. Not to water it down, but just lest you go a little crazy with this and misunderstand the text. First, some people look at this passage and passages like it and come away saying something like this. Oh, see? You don't need teaching. You don't need books. You don't need training. Seminaries, all that stuff, it's just a waste of time and effort. Fine. 
If you can find a divine, sinless, omniscient, omnipotent guide to mentor you through life, go for it. I'll just stop with that. Second qualifier, clarifier, some come away from this and say, see, look what, look what the disciples did. The, 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 the latter two brothers with that fire. See, when you become a Christian, all obligations, all responsibilities, nope, gone. No. That is not what this is saying in any way, shape, or form. Other the other Gospels, I think it's Luke, one of them points out, just, just it's worth noting, that there were, Matthew doesn't touch on this, but there were servants there with Zebedee. Okay? Again, speaking to the scope and the size of this fishing business that they have going on. When, when these sons, put it this way, when these sons leave the business, when they leave their father, they are not abandoning him to financial ruin. All right, then what does it say? What does this mean? Jesus is not calling us to dismiss and dispose and destroy everything that had to do with our identity and community in the past. But he is being absolutely clear on this. He will disrupt it. Maybe even violently. He is saying, everything else must come second. And maybe even a distant second. So far, maybe so far it's second compared to him in first that there doesn't even seem to be a race. Or if we can, uh, this image, if, if this helps. It's as though, if you imagine our solar system and all of a sudden a new sun is put into it. And all your planets need to learn the new orbits. That's what he's calling for here. Everything else second. The king has come. We're called to follow him. Now, kind of taking this and coming back and, and blending it all in with what we talked about last week, with, with the fact that we live in tension, remember this? In, in the times between the times, in the, in the now and the not yet, in that sense in which the kingdom has come, truly. But it has not come fully. And so we live in this period in which the decisive battle has been fought and won, and yet at the same time there are still struggles. There are still skirmishes. It's not yet over. And we use these two images. I threw these two out uh, last week. The one was the, the Robin Hood legends, and another was the Narnia tales. I want to come back to those, but tweak them a little bit. So the Robin Hood tales, right? You've got um, King Richard is coming back to take his kingdom back from the usurper, the evil Prince John. Now, okay, that's something of what it means to live in these times of tension. You're, you're Robin Hood, or you're a part of the band of his merry men. How then do you respond when you see King Richard? coming towards you. You bow and you follow him. Narnia stories. It's, it's the it, language in the wardrobe in particular. Aslan, the great lion, is, come, is coming to uh, undo the spell of, of the white witch. Right. All right, you're a Narnian. And you see the mighty lion coming towards you. What's your response? You bow, and you follow him. My point in this is simply this. Even, maybe especially, while we're living in between the times, in the tension, in the, in the now and the, in the not yet, we are called to hear our king and heed his summons. Now, who is the king? Jesus is the king. 
The King has come. He's called us to bow and follow Him, whatever that means and wherever that takes us. Let's pray. Lord, how shocking this must have been that day to see this unfold. To hear your words and to see the responses. We ask that you'd help us to feel something of that today. These are compelling words. There's an insistence to what you are calling for. And somehow at the same time, coupled with a promise, you demand a response, even from us. And we ask that you'd help us this morning to to think through, to wrestle through, to be honest. What nets and boat do we need to leave? Who do we need to leave standing in the boat? What do we need to put as second in order that you would really be first? Lord, there, there may be some here who, for the first time, are hearing this as an initial challenge. Help them here. And no doubt there are no few of us also who are in desperate need of this as an ongoing, continual reminder to leave the nets and leave the boat and whoever's in the boat and follow you. Help us hear. Help us, help us answer you, respond to you as we should. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask my fellow uh, elders and however...